It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. This is Political Currency with Ed Bulls and George Osborne. Welcome, and welcome to the other half of Britain's seventh most powerful couple in the whole country, Ed Balls. Because if you've not been following the Politico's power list in Valentine's Day week, you would have missed the fact that, Ed, you are with your wife, Yvette, up there in the list of the most powerful romantic couples in Britain. Congratulations. Thank you. Look, there was a time when people said, you know, Ed Balls and his wife, Yvette Cooper, and now they say Yvette Cooper and her husband, uh, Ed Balls. I'm definitely now the Dennis Thatcher of this relationship. I'm definitely the number two. God knows how we got into this list. But it's clearly, at least from my point of view, it's clearly trading on past glories because, you know, politics is behind me. Well, I think there are three in this marriage because the reason you're back in the list, by the way, you used to be uh, number one back in the day, is because you're doing a podcast with me. Is that what it says? According to this. What What does it say? It says the Balls, a former Labour shadow chancellor and power player, the last time the party was in government, launched the Political Currency podcast with one-time Tory opposite number George Osborne. And this, this is the thing. Hang on a second. Aren't you married to somebody who was a political power player? <laughs> well, I'm in a podcast marriage with you. I know, but I and, think... And I there's think, the I know, speculation... But you just had a child and it's not with me, let's be honest. <laughs> that, is, that is for that sure. Is absolutely true. <laughs> that is for sure. But there is speculation about a Balls comeback. Could we see Lord Balls, the business secretary, this time next year as Starmer seeks out political heavyweights? Don't you think Lord Balls, the clue is in the name? I think it's like a very, very, very bad idea. They asked me when I lost my seat in 2015 and I said I didn't think it was a good idea and I certainly haven't changed my mind. My only feeling is, you know, slight obsession here on your part with whether I'm going to go into the House of Lords. Is this the old David Cameron rankle again? You know, your old mate back in the Lords, Foreign Secretary, travelling the world. We're going to be discussing him later. I just sort of think in the end, you know, you've got to look in, you know, across the table and think, why is he asking me these questions? Well, Lord Osborne has more of a ring to it than Lord Balls, I will concede. But anyway, we should get on true. with our podcast because there is important matters to be discussed. We're starting with the economy because we found out this morning at 7am that officially, at least on um, the standard definition, the British economy went into recession in the second half of last year. It may still be in recession now. So we're going to be discussing why, what's happening and the politics of that. And let's be honest, it's been a bit of a reprieve for Labour, who until this point had been having a nightmare week. And we are going to discuss the problems they've encountered after their U-turn on the £28 billion of green spending, but particularly the problems they've had with their candidate in the Rochdale by-election. 
And then we're going to follow David Cameron over the English Channel to the Munich Security Conference, which kicks off this weekend. Big focus there at this annual conference, which I don't know a lot about, but George has been before, about, um, in particular, Donald Trump's comments about defence spending across the European countries, including the UK, and what that might mean for the security guarantee of America as a NATO member. We're going to discuss that third. But we're going to start with the economy. And we had this news at 7am this morning, dropped on to uh, the wires from the Office of National Statistics. Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, would have had the news at exactly the same time as everybody else that the economy contracted in the final three months of last year. And it wasn't clear that was going to be the outcome. There was a fall of 0.1% in what people call GDP, gross domestic product, which is the accumulation of all output in the economy or all incomes. And so the economy got smaller in the third quarter. We now know the same thing happened in the fourth quarter. It was actually a 0.3% contraction, two quarters of falling output. That's a recession on the standard definition. It was slightly worse than people expected over the quarter, the 0.3 number. It was both a fall in spending by consumers and businesses, a fall in production, particularly a bigger fall in construction spending. So the pledge from the Prime Minister was for the economy to grow, and it didn't grow in the second half of last year. This is what Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, told the world straight after the figures were released. We always expected growth to be weaker while we prioritised tackling inflation. That means higher interest rates. And that's the right thing to do because you can't have long-term healthy growth with high inflation. So I think there's two things we should first of all look at. Is this really what we understand by a recession? You know, recession is such a powerful word in the English political lexicon. Does it feel like a recession? I mean, it's definitely a recession on the technical definition that the economy shrank two quarters in a row. But it doesn't feel to me like the kind of body blow that I felt in 2012 when I was told the economy had gone into a double-dip recession and it feels nothing like the recession of the great financial crisis or in the early 90s. So that's the first thing. Is it really a recession? And then the uh, second question I think we should ask ourselves is, is Hunt right that this is a recession brought about because they're trying to tackle inflation? And so it's the lesser of two evils and people are going to listen to his argument that that's therefore a path to a better future. So the standard definition, which is one we've normally use of a recession, is do you have two quarters, so six months, in which output falls? It falls in both quarter. Two quarters of negative growth in the economy, i.e. it contracts, is a recession. And on that basis, minus 0.1, minus 0.3, it's a recession. The National Bureau of Economic Research, which is a big think tank based in Harvard in Cambridge, Massachusetts, has a different definition and they say a significant decline in output lasting more than a few months. The financial Which this t- isn't, right? Well, so what financial- would you say? Would you call this a recession? Or? So the FT have just decided that they're going to shift from the standard definition to the NBR definition. And on that basis, I think they will say it's not a recession, it's a stagnation. You're an ex-FT journalist who teaches at Harvard. I so am. you're going to go with the FT in Harvard and say it's not a recession. Well, so I think it's um, definitely two quarters of falling output on that basis of recession. But as you say, it's very mild, very small falls in output over the period. It's lasted a few months. But is it a significant decline? Well, you know, it is a decline, but it's compared to, as you said, past downturns, recessions, stagnations, it's pretty mild. The economy was flat in the second half of last year. People have been having a hard time because of the cost of living crisis. But normally when you have a recession, you think of not just the economy 
really slowing down, but also unemployment rising and lots of layoffs and lots of companies going bankrupt. And we've not seen that. So I don't think this is what we normally talk of as a recession. I think stagnation is um, a better word. So I'm inclined to go with the MBR definition rather than the standard definition. But look, I don't think it matters for two reasons. One, as you said, Jeremy Hunt needed inflation to come down. Inflation was only going to come down if the Bank of England raised interest rates. The only way they could get inflation down was by raising interest rates to slow down the economy. And they've succeeded. Inflation is coming down. We know this week inflation was down to 4%. Good news for the government. Yeah, they they were expecting potentially worse news on inflation. They thought it might go up. And the reason why it's happening is because you've had this stagnation in the second half of next year. So it's the policy working. But the second thing is, as you know from our times in the past, the framing of the economic debate is really important in terms of public perception. And because of this news today between now and the budget, all the way through until um, we get the first quarter numbers for another month or two, the economy is in recession. People won't say it was in recession at the end of last year. They'll say it is in recession. And they'll be debating whether it's still in recession. And that will have a, you know, a more negative cast on the political debate. And that's just a, a truth. And I don't think you'd advise Jeremy Hunt to say it's not really a recession. It's yeah. just a stagnation because he'd get laughed at. No, I think... Um You're right that it'll cast a pall over the government's economic message. There's no doubt about that. And, you know, my heart used to sink when I would see those GDP numbers. And if I had a negative quarter, I just knew it would colour the political debate for the next three months from my point of view. And And the same for me. And if I had a positive number, I knew I'd have an easier three months ahead. So the government will have a tougher time with its economic message. I think they'll still claim they've hit one of these Sunak targets to get the economy growing in 2023, but it was an unbelievably near win. But it was it, it was well, it, it was 0.1. It was unbelievably close. It, you know, the economy did grow by 0.1 overall in 2023. But it was contracting at the end of the year. So you know, Labour are saying Sunak's missed his pledge. Sunak will say, "Well, I've hit it." As you approach a general election, though, you know, the question is not really what is the current situation, but it's the future direction. It's going to come down to this battle which is, are Sunak and Hunt right to say we're turning a corner? Yes, there was a recession, technical recession, because the Bank of England took the tough action necessary and we took tough action, they would claim, to bring inflation down. And now things are improving. Or is it just you know, hopeless to be in the election year in recession and uh, gives you very limited time to recover? You know, We've talked about this before on the podcast. The 92 example the unexpected win by John Major after a long period of Conservative government, came really at a time when the economy probably was in recession. And he, however, was able to point to the fact that things were starting to improve. I mean, that's what they'll be, I think, clinging to in Downing Street this week. That's right. But if you think of that period, the big blow to the credibility of the Conservatives as economic managers didn't happen in the recession of 1991. It happened in uh, the debacle of leaving the exchange rate mechanism, the ERM, in September 1992. And after that, John Major and Ken Clark, even though the economy grew, they never recovered their standing. And the question is for Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak, can they say, we've made the tough decisions, we're getting it through, you're starting to feel better off? Or have the public decided, you had your chance, you messed it up, the whole disaster of Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng. And the polls say that they've had a 92-style hit to their standing and credibility. And on that basis, you can't rely upon 
1992 style economic and political recovery because it's more existential at the moment for the Conservatives. There's an interesting debate as well, which is politicians are often told, I remember endlessly being told this as Chancellor, you know, you can't talk in the abstract about the economy. It's how people you know, experience it on the ground. And if you say things are getting better, that's not going to chime with people's real experiences. Labour are trying to claim that people's real experience of the economy is also, like the technical recession, you know, a very negative one. So they are they put out figures saying that GDP per capita has fallen. But of course, that's partly because the population's been growing. And if you look at some other measures, people's personal experience of the economy might be getting quite a lot better this year. So real incomes are growing. There's a very interesting set of numbers, actually, I saw in the Financial Times again, give them another credit, which shows that in the UK alone, out of the major Western economies, wages have been growing faster than prices in recent years. In the US, it's the reverse. In the Eurozone, it's the reverse. In others, people have been getting poorer in real terms. But in the UK, people have been getting richer in real terms. Real incomes are up actually 12% since 2010. So, you know, people can point to this. If you're a conservative minister, you can point to people feeling better off. Inflation, as we were talking about, whilst prices are still going up, inflation is coming down. And if anything, the recession numbers mean that the Bank of England is more certain to be cutting rates this year and maybe cutting rates by more than were expected. So people are now looking for a rate cut, for example, for the first rate cut in June. So you know, the, the Conservatives will be able to say your own personal experience of the economy might be quite a positive one at the moment. I'm not sure, though, that chimes with people's experience. Nobody remembers back to 2010. People feel as though they've got worse off in this parliament. They're paying more tax. There's been, for many people, inflation higher than wages and rising energy bills. Over the course of this year, even if interest rates are going to come down, which they will, and they may come down slightly earlier now as a result of the better inflation news, because so many people are on fixed mortgage deals, which they agreed three or five years ago, over the course of this year, when people get a new mortgage rate, it's going to be higher than the one they were paying before rather than lower. I think that will last into 2025. So I'm not sure. There was this famous quote that you were mentioning to me earlier, the Ronald Reagan quote. Which one was that from? So Ronald Reagan in 1980, when he was running to be the president, he wasn't the president, he was running against President Carter in the big televised debate at the time. He asked this famous question, which has been used in American politics ever since and in British politics. We'll play you. I won't tell you what it is. Let's hear Reagan himself in 1980. Next Tuesday, all of you will go to the polls. We'll stand there in the polling place and make a decision. I think when you make that decision, it might be well if you would ask yourself, are you better off than you were four years ago? It's the great question. What's your prediction that people will feel at the polls? Well, I think it's possible people... Compared to the last election four years ago. Well, the last election five years ago in Britain's case was pre-pandemic, 2019. So I'm not sure people will think before the pandemic. But I think it's quite possible this autumn people will say, my income is starting to rise, my interest rates are coming down, unemployment has not gone up, I'm actually not doing so badly as I thought I might be. I was led to believe this was going to be much worse, the squeeze. And then, of course, elections are choices. They're not referendums on the government, they're choices. Am I going to put all this at risk, to quote the Sunak language at the moment, am I going to go back to square one under Labour, am I going to put it all at risk? Look, I start with the assumption this is a very difficult election for the Tories to win for all sorts of reasons. They're way behind in the opinion polls. 
We've got two by-elections happening tonight in Wellingborough and Kingswood, where everyone expects the Labour Party to win both seats off the Tories. So that's the backdrop to all this. I'm just saying you could assemble an economic case for the Tories at the moment. And that is obviously what Sunak and Hunt are going to be trying to do in the months ahead. Although I wouldn't say that was an emphatic answer to the Reagan question. I mean, you know, are you better off than four years ago? You didn't say yes. Well, you are. You, I mean, in real, you, real you income, said real income people will feel higher. that they thought it was going to be even worse and it's not been as bad as <laughs> I expected. And my mortgage rates have gone up and I am quite worried about the cost of living, but, you know, yeah. maybe it would be worse under Labour. It's a complicated argument. And the no, question it's, it's is whether not, actually people feel <laughs> what you need them to feel. It's not the Harold Macmillan, you've never had it so good. In 91-92, it was people felt that it would be worse under Labour. Yes. So that is the argument they've got to run. I'm not sure I would be spending the year telling them that you're better off with the Conservatives because I'm not sure that's going to feel how people are at any point in the next 12 months. It's probably a good point now to shift to Labour. Before we do, just one other thought. This is a sort of interesting thing. Front of the FT has today a story about how Jeremy Hunt needs tax cuts in the budget. And maybe he should be announcing even deeper public spending cuts to pay for tax cuts. Maybe this is the moment where a Conservative Chancellor can have a little Keynesian lean and say, well, maybe I need to cut taxes now to boost the economy, to help people and the economy recover. You know, we're in recession, but we're going to get out decisive action. I'm not advocating that. I'm just wondering whether you think any part of Jamie Hunt might be slightly tempted by that argument. Well, the, the, a boost for growth. Yeah, there is no Conservative, no sensible Conservative who believes that the budget should be balanced every single year. So even, you know, if you are very keen as I was on sound public finances and running surpluses, if you can, in good years, you do accept that you borrow in bad years. You didn't balance it in any year. Well, I was, I was trying. Just saying. I know you were trying. <laughs> trying. Just saying. If, if, if you we give did. Me... I mean, I've been at the Treasury when we had a surplus. That was, uh, that was the uh, Tories' golden legacy that you oh, uh, squandered was... in 97. No, I, I think it was in 2000. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Three years in. I tell <laughs> exactly. you, nobody said I... the Tories' golden legacy. They just said Labour's got a surplus. You're asking a point, which is you could be a bit left field here and you could say, we're in a recession the fiscal rules were not designed for this situation. I'm going to borrow to cut taxes. But if uh, he cuts taxes, he is going to be borrowing. Yeah, I'm going to borrow more. And I don't care that I now miss my fiscal rules because it's an extraordinary situation. I think the truth is that, he, A, it's probably too close to the budget to make such a course correction. B, I suspect Jeremy Hunt would rather play the steady as she goes card. And C, it comes back to where we started this conversation. I don't feel like the recession feels like a big enough crisis. It's not a deep enough recession. It doesn't feel like that big threatening R word that we've had before in British politics. So to you have justify. to labour the threat. It's not better off with the Tories, cutting taxes with the Tories. It's more, we're delivering a steady recovery. Don't let Labour that, screw That's up. certainly the current Conservative campaign plan. And it's what you would tell them to do. I think so. I, I, I don't think, I think it would look too panicky now. But then, you know, the counter argument is, it is time to panic. Anyway, let's turn to Labour, because let's be honest, these recession numbers have come as a blessed relief after a pretty torrid week for the Labour leader. And we'll be talking about that next. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. 
only from Rustolium. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome back. So it's been a pretty horrific week for Keir Starmer. I would say it's been the worst week of his leadership in terms of the struggles he's had. And he's had two problems. One is the way the U-turn on the 28 billion, which was necessary, we've discussed that before, was executed, the 28 billion pound pledge on spending. And then second, he's in all sorts of problems in Rochdale, where the Labour Party now does not have a candidate in the by-election due at the end of this month in the seat that was vacated when a lovely man called Tony Lloyd, Labour MP we both knew, died. And quite extraordinarily, we're now going to have this by-election where there is no official Labour candidate because the official Labour candidate said things that were deemed to be anti-Semitic and unacceptable. Neil Kinnock, you know, who I guess, I guess is the sort of proto-modernizer in the history of the Labour Party, isn't he? He's the man who kind of takes Labour out of the wilderness in the 1980s, but doesn't, like Moses, doesn't quite get to the promised land. Tony Blair does that. You know, he came out this week, and he's he's a loyalist, isn't he? But he said the, the Labour leadership lacked political savvy in the handling of these two things that has caused a bit of a crisis for the Labour Party. Now, all in the context of having a massive poll lead at the moment, so let's not you know, get too excited about it. But do you agree with that, that there's been a a lack of deft handling of both of these things, the U-turn on the economic policy and the candidate problems in Rochdale? Look, if Labour was to lose either of the two by-elections, then it would be the end of a terrible week for Keir Starmer. It's kind of slightly odd. These are are the by-elections, we should say, in Wellingborough and Kingswood, two Tory seats. The Rochdale by-election is coming in a couple of weeks' time. Exactly. And, you know, Given that one majority is 11,000 and one is 18,000 for the Conservatives, the idea that it would be a blow to Keir Starmer not to win those by-elections is, is, is quite something. But the poll lead would justify that. But I think you have to distinguish between the two two different elements of your bad week. The bad week started at the weekend with what happened in Rochdale. I don't think the leadership will be thinking that the U-turn on the 28 billion went badly at all. And I think on that, they would say Neil Kinnock was wrong. And if anything, the failure of Neil Kinnock was not to do a U-turn himself in 1991 on very large commitments on child benefit and pensions, which couldn't be afforded given the recession, led to the shadow budget of 1992, the threat of tax rises, which is exactly what contributed to Labour's downfall. So I think they would say the politically savvy thing to do was the thing Neil Kinnock didn't do, and they did do, which was to get off a commitment 
which is causing them problems. And we said a couple of weeks ago, if you're going to do a U-turn, it's got to be big and messy and noticed. And it was. And, you know, Although they're still, we discussed this last week, they're still stuck with this 2030 decarbonisation pledge, which the Tories are saying, hold on, you told us it was going to cost £28 billion a year to deliver Labour. So what's changed? They're still mounting the, there's a secret uh, Labour spending bombshell there. Well, they kind of are and they kind of aren't. I mean, when we did the podcast last week, we didn't know what the U-term was going to be. And we knew they'd come off the 28 billion number. We didn't know that they would commit as hard as they did to the 2030 decarbonisation, claim they could do that with much less spending, introduce a new windfall tax. And I think I said last week, I thought the 2030 thing was pretty hard to meet for spending and planning reasons. And that was before they substantially reduced the expenditure. But having said that, one, I think Rachel Reeves is saying the 2030 commitment you know, is still subject to the fiscal rules. And let's see how this evolves. But the other thing, which I think is more important, is if the Conservatives had come out and said the 2013 is sacrosanct, that's the commitment, how are they going to pay for it? They didn't. Rishi Sunak made his issue. He did this in his GB News debate on Monday. Keir Starmer's done a a U-turn. They've dropped their big pledge. They've not got an economic policy anymore. What he did was he stood up the U-turn. He stood up the dropping You're you're saying he should have said they haven't U-turned because they haven't U-turned on the... On the objective, 20th, exactly. On, yeah. And how are they going to pay for it? Because he said, yes, they have U-turned. Where's the pledge gone? Quite hard for them to turn out around and say, but they're going to do it, it really. And so, uh, you know. No, I mean, I, I would agree with you that, it, you know, it's it's usually a mistake for a government to say the opposition doesn't believe in anything. You know, they haven't got any principles. They keep the, the abandoning the policies. I mean, they, they, I or remember, they've done what they say they're doing. I mean, I remember the Labour attack on David Cameron that he was a chameleon. They had a little like cartoon chameleon driving a cycling a bicycle, and and it was you know first of all it just reminded everyone that David Cameron was cycling around, which was sort of greenish, and also it was that he was changing. So I, I agree, you know, if, if they're going to make the twenty eight billion stick as a secret Labour plan, then they've got to not accept the U turn, and they did. Emphatically, what we know from the Institute for Fiscal Studies did a chart earlier in the week, which says that now the implications of Labour's U-turn is that the national debt will be falling on current plans. It will be falling markedly more than when they were committed to 28 billion, but it will still be, national debt will be slightly higher under Labour than under the Conservatives. Can the Conservatives turn that into you know, a threat, a bombshell? I think it was easier for them to do that if they hadn't stood up the U-turn. But I think that's still still to come. But the big thing was, did Rachel Reeves get off a £28 billion pound a year, big commitment, massive commitment, which was you know a real problem. And I think that they succeeded on. So I think the bad news starts at the weekend. Yeah. So Kinnick might have been wrong that they about the U-turn because they did the U-turn that Kinnick should have himself done. What about the uh, Rochdale candidate? Now, I, let me let me say, I'll say my piece. I mean, I had when I was involved in the Tory leadership, numerous cases where we had candidates who said bad things and had to deal with sort of disciplinary issues. And I would say the first thing you do in that situation, sitting there in Number Ten Downing Street in the Prime Minister's office, is I want to know every single thing this person has said before I come out and find a way through. And it seems to me fairly extraordinary that the Labour leadership, when they basically got the candidate, Azhar Ali, to apologise for what he'd said. He said, by the way, I unreservedly apologise. And then the Labour Party sent out the high command to defend that. 
So you had Labour shadow cabinet ministers saying he's apologised, he's made a mistake. I mean, slightly beg the question why you'd want to elect an MP who falls for conspiracy theories on the internet. But anyway, leave that aside. What seems to me really unforgivable in terms of kind of competent party management is not to have established at that point that he didn't say anything else embarrassing at the very same meeting. Because a couple of days later, it emerges that he says anti-Semitic things about Jewish influence in the British press that forces Starmer to ditch him as the Labour candidate. And for people who you know, aren't into the arcane rules of by-elections, it's now too late for Labour to submit someone else to be the candidate. The ballot papers have been printed. The leaflets have gone out. There's nothing they can do. This man is you know, got Labour next to him on the ballot paper, even though he's no longer the Labour candidate. But surely, Ed, you would agree that was a basic error at the heart of the Labour campaigning operation, not to have found out more about this candidate once he's already been exposed. Look, it's definitely a basic error. It's a huge mess. It's embarrassing and difficult. And you don't feel like it's the end of the story. And, um, and standing back, you know, we should talk about the different elements of what has gone wrong. The one thing I would say hasn't gone wrong is that Keir Starmer had to say, after what had gone before, that he was going to be a Labour leader who rooted out anti-Semitism and that he would he would not compromise on that. And he mustn't compromise on that. And I don't think he has done. But at the weekend, it was a mess because you have this by-election candidate who um, has been selected. It turns out some months before... In October, I think it was, last year, he was at a party meeting to reassure local people that the Labour Party hadn't become so gung-ho on support for Israel, come what may, that they weren't listening to the concerns of the local community. And they were worried, as you said, because the deadline had passed, that if he was withdrawn as the candidate and you handed over the seat as de facto would happen to George Galloway. I mean, George Galloway is a more dangerous person in Parliament from the Jewish community's point of view to be representing the Rochdale seat. So it was it was a problem for them. But then, as you said, they didn't know, it seems, the words he'd used. He referred to people in the media from certain Jewish quarters who had been winding up remarks, Andrew MacDonald had said, an MP who was suspended last year. And the moment you start talking about, you know, the Jewish media, you're absolutely into anti-Semitic tropes. And at that point, Keir Starmer definitely had to to act. You could see why he was worried he was going to make things worse. And then it turns out that another candidate, former MP, Graham Jones, was also at this meeting, who'd also said, I don't think actually anti-Semitic things, but quite tough things. And then there's a hue and cry. And he he's, been suspended. he's been well. suspended as well. Um, so here's a question to you, you know, for those who don't know, you've been heavily involved in, for example, getting the Holocaust Memorial built in Britain and strong supporter of Labour Friends of Israel and so on. So I don't think anyone doubts your credentials on this. Do, do, do you think it's fair to draw a distinction, as some of the shadow cabinet have been trying to do, between criticism of Israel, including very kind of fruity criticism of Israel, which is what the Hindburn candidate, you know, he, was, he was saying like, fucking Israel, you know, British people who go and fight for Israeli army should be put in prison and so on. And what the Rochdale candidate was saying, which was essentially anti-Semitic things about Jewish influence in the press. Or do you think that's just too difficult a, a distinction to draw? Well, look, we have the news today from the Community Security Trust that anti-Semitic attacks in the UK 
have doubled over the last year. Huge rise in anti-Semitic attacks. The Jewish community feels hugely in Britain on the attack, abuse, but also assaults as well. And um, the Labour Party had the charge of being anti-Semitic, which Keir Starmer had to turn around. So, so of course, he has to be um, kind of intolerant of anything which um, looks as though it's anti-Semitic. Part of his problem is, I think he slightly handed over defining what is or isn't anti-Semitic to the charges made in the media or by campaigning groups rather than necessarily owning that definition himself. It's, it's, it's not clear quite how this is now being defined. There's two things I, th- I think to say. First of all, the politics of it. It looks like a sting. I mean, this was recorded in October, but it didn't actually make it into the newspapers, the Mail on Sunday, and then to the Guido Fawkes website until after nominations had closed. Clever politics. Clever politics by the Tories. Probably. Well, by the Tories, but it's not clear. I mean, I'm told it's from not my... clear. It was, a, it, it was it was a Tory person in there. It could well have been somebody from the hard left who made this recording, who thought this is a way to have a go at Keir Starmer. And there's certainly speculation it's a Labour councillor rather than a Conservative infiltrating activist. But whatever happens, it's massively put Keir Starmer on the defensive, and you feel like this is the thin end of what could be a thick wedge. I mean, how many other recordings are there? Do they have a full recording of this? Have so there I'm been told other there is a full recording of this meeting. Well, my my Tory sources. I don't know who did the recording. I don't no. have an answer to your question earlier. It's not in the public domain yet, and it's going to be this drip, drip, drip. And I think before we kind of come on to the broader issue of how Labour should be handling the Gaza conflict yeah. and stuff, there is a you know essentially Starmer's central message is: I have changed the Labour Party so I can change Britain. I'm in charge of this party after the disaster of Corbyn and so on. I mean, this is absolutely grist to the Tory mill, which is you haven't changed the Labour Party. And isn't one of Starmer's challenges. The, this is such a kind of recent period of Labour's history when it was taken over by the hard left. You know, it was at the last general election that Jeremy Corbyn was the official candidate to be the prime minister. That you're trying to condense in a few years what Neil Kernock and Tony Blair and John Smith pulled off over many, many years. And so there are going to be loads of things that Labour candidates have said and probably are still saying in meetings around the country. And these days, all you need is a mobile phone and, you know, you can record those things. When I was doing my job when I was in my early 20s, I used to go to Labour meetings as uh, the official Conservative Party observer, but with a tape recorder in my pocket in case someone said anything kind of interesting. You know, now anyone can do that. And the Starmer leadership needs to work out how it's going to handle potentially quite a lot of these sorts of incidents between now and the general election. Well, let's come to Labour second. But first of all, the more general point, we are about to have an election which has been four or five years in the build-up, in which there have been candidates selected for quite a long time, in an era unlike 2010 or 1997, where you have much more social media and access to easy recording. And um, this is not going to be the first time that there is a recording about something somebody said or wrote or did, which causes embarrassment. And if you have said, as Keir Starmer has, zero tolerance, then it's very hard for you to um, not act. And who, who knows how many are going to come out into the public domain in the coming weeks. It will be the same for the Conservatives as well. It wouldn't surprise me if Labour has got operations out there looking at candidates. It feels like this is going to be a dirty tricks election more generally. The second thing, though, is if you are Keir Starmer, there have been a number of moments in the last year where people have said stupid things. Not all of them anti-Semitic, not all of them 
clearly anti-Semitic, a lot of them debatable. You had uh, Dan Abbott said something kind of stupid in April last year. Dan Abbott, long-standing Labour MP, first black woman, great credential as a campaigner. I don't agree with her on lots of different things, but I don't think she's a bad person. She's been suspended. Do you think Labour she, Party. Sh- she, should be well, a, she should be a Labour candidate in the next election? But she's been suspended for a year. Would you let her back in? Well, hang on a sec. I think the answer is I wouldn't have started from here, is, is the answer. They've handled it in this way. They've allowed people like Dan to be suspended for a year, to be an example. You had Andy McDonald and Kate Osamore, um, people who apologised, said things where, you know, it's contentious whether or not it was anti-Semitic, but they're still suspended. And then you have Azar Ali, who says something which is clearly anti-Semitic. But you also have Graham Jones, where it's hard to see the anti-Semitism. But once you've said that I'm not accepting apologies... I'm non-compromising. If people see it as a threat, it's a threat. If he's been consistent with what's happened with Diane Abbott and others over the last year, then he has to to suspend them. And what moves from looking like it was quite convenient to keep hard left people out of standing as candidates now suddenly becomes much more difficult for him because these are people who he thought were his supporters. So it's, it's quite messy and quite difficult. I'm not sure I would have started from here. I'm not sure I would have been have said, look, you've got to be very tough on anti-Semitism, but I'm not sure I would have prevented anybody apologising, serving their a bit of contrition and returning. But he hasn't done that. And this is now defined... Well, he did try. To be fair, he tried in Rochdale. That was the beginning of the week. But part it? of the problem was it looked so ridiculous given all these other people were but suspended you, for so long. So you, I think he has to double down on it because I'm not sure how where else he goes, but it's very, very messy But and New Labour was famous, you know, you, you were involved. You were like Gordon Brown's right-hand man at the time. In in the run-up to 97 and immediately afterwards, the Labour was famous for its iron discipline. You know, Alistair Campbell would ball out any... Labour candidate who trod over the line. Yeah, but there were very few people who were stopped from being Labour candidates, actually deselected. The one I remember is Liz Davis, who was deselected as a Labour candidate in Leeds Northwest before the 97 election. But I think so, it, for understandable reasons, because of the anti-Semitism issue, I think this is harder and less forgiving, less accepting of apology. And I think that Keir Starmer may have thought to himself, you know, at the time he had no choice. But in retrospect... That hard line is, you know, in and politics, Sue you Gray read what being, you sow. Sue Gray, the chief of staff, former civil servant chief of staff now to Keir Starmer, you know, she's being criticised for running a tough leak inquiry into how the Guardian That was the 28 billion. Yeah, the Guardian newspaper found out about the 28 billion and, you know, people inside the Labour campaigning operation are complaining about this. So do you think it's like that you can take iron discipline or you know, the uh, dictatorial leadership too far. Well, I most th- people would say that's the one thing we wanted from Labour, a bit of grip from the Labour leader. I think, I think it has to be objective and it has to be fair. And you can't say, I have a view of what anti-Semitism is, which I apply in a tougher standard for people who are my political opponents and are more lenient on for people who are my political friends. And if you're going to take this hard line, you take the hard line on everybody. Where, wherever it leads and that, and that is, And that is, that, is, so, that is quite uncomfortable. But it goes to a wider point which is about, um, you know, the conversations we had back in the autumn. Why was there the meeting to reassure party members in the Northwest at which these guys said these things? Why did they feel the need to, to reach out and to try and placate? And the answer was because, as we discussed, Keir Starmer got on the back foot on the Israel-Gaza issue. He took such a hard line supporting Israel. It felt like come what may. He didn't put markers down about how he would judge 
good and bad, fair and unfair outcomes, you've ended up in the rather surprising situation where David Cameron, Lord Cameron as Foreign Secretary, seems to be saying things which are rather more walking the line between the interests of the Israel state, but also talking about potential recognition of a Palestinian state on the road to trying to find a compromise. You don't hear the same things being said in the same way by senior Labour spokespeople. And I mean, so you're saying they're basically terrified look, of their shadow on this. I'm not well, excusing well, because of the history of anti-Semitism, because of the action Starmer has taken. You know, Labour are not as forward-leaning as even Tory Foreign Secretary David Cameron is uh, on criticism of Israel for, for example, the potential offensive in Rafa in where we are. Gaza, or you yeah. know, David Cameron has sanctioned. Jewish settlers, extremist Jewish settlers in the last week. But if you think back to after 2007, David Miliband as foreign secretary and Gordon Brown as prime minister were critical of Israeli incursions up in, you know, to the north of Israel. And we haven't seen the same willingness to be critical of the actions Israel is taking from Kistam. And I understand why, because as you said, of the anti-Semitism problem. But again, you read what you sow. Having said that, you and I know, if you as a candidate, an experienced politician, go into a public meeting and say things to placate a group of people, which if it were reported on the front of the Daily Mail or the Sun, you'd be in trouble, then you are an idiot. I mean, I have to say, Rishi Sunak did that in Tunbridge Wells in the leadership election when he went, do you remember he said that we're going to take money from poor people in the north to get more people to places like this. And if, you know, that was, I think, a bit naive as well. But so well, he actually lost that contest. And he lost that contest. And, and <laughs> he wasn't, these, these he wasn't guys expecting said, to be the prime minister shortly after. In, in the case of Graham Jones, he said stupid things. Yeah. And in the case of Azarali, he said unacceptable things. But it's partly a reflection of the fractures what does which it are facing Labour because of, Even, I think, you know, not showing enough nuance in the argument. Although Rochdale will either have, as an MP, I'm going to predict the Tories don't win this by-election, they're either going to have one of uh, an ex-Labour MP, George Galloway. There's another ex-Labour MP called Simon Danchuk, standing for the Faragist Reform and, and Party. And as I really, he'll never become a Labour MP. Because <laughs> he will be, he will, he will be, he I mean, will be de-recognised on arrival. It's quite a good case study of what's happened to the Labour movement over the last 10 years. Anyway, we will definitely keep an eye on that because the by-election is not for a couple of weeks. And I think we should turn, in fact, to what David Cameron is going to be doing in the next couple of days because he has just flown to the Munich Security Conference, which is a big event of Securitats from across the Atlantic happening in southern Germany. Flying on a government plane, the Lord Cameron, we, the Foreign Secretary. Oh, my gosh. I it think, oozes. I can see it. I think the How did it work out this way, George? Well, the Foreign Secretary is allowed to have a plane. Are you saying, why haven't I got a plane? You, I well, know. Maybe I mean, you have. I need more jobs. Oh, you do. <laughs> So the Munich Security Conference starts over this weekend. Big meeting of defence security leaders, ministers, experts from across the um, the NATO countries and beyond. Kamala Harris is flying over the vice president to represent the United States. David Cameron off to represent the UK as foreign secretary. I think Grant Shapps, the defence secretary, is there as well. They've produced a report, the conference secretariat, in which they say that national self-interest risks stymieing global cooperation, that increasingly countries are thinking that competing with each other is more important than the collective greater good. And reading it, it feels as though this is a conference in Munich. I've not been to it before, but I think you have, George. It's a conference which is anticipating the arrival of Donald Trump 
and how he may destabilize the world order. So it's 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 rather an interesting conference. It's it's very intimate. It happens in a German hotel called the Bayerischer Hof in Munich. And it's not one of these big sprawling events like Davos, which we were talking about a few weeks ago, or the IMF meetings you get in Washington twice a year, or the UN General Assembly Week in New York. It all happens around the couple of bars and a restaurant in this one hotel. And it's full of the security states of uh, these different NATO members. So you get generals and spy chiefs and foreign ministers and defense ministers. You know, they don't like having chancellors and finance ministers there because they might ask difficult questions about how everything's going to be paid for. <laughs> but they it's a really interesting conference. And I, only, I only went to it once. But it's another... Was that when you were considering being foreign secretary? <laughs> was, were you actually, there on a bit of a trial trip? I was, uh, in fact, after I, after I left government. Um, oh, really? And I remember sitting there, I remember thinking, oh, I should have definitely come to this at some point when I was in government. But, you know, it's, it's also a big meeting of the Americans and the Europeans. And it's another event that is going to be completely overshadowed by the person who's not going to be there, Donald Trump, because, you know, he has kicked off this conference by issuing this pretty dramatic warning to NATO countries that are not spending enough, as he would say, on defense. This is what he said. They asked me that question. One of the presidents of a big country stood up and said, well, sir, uh, if we don't pay and we're attacked by Russia, will you protect us? I said, you didn't pay? You're delinquent? He said, yes, let's say that happened. No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. You got to pay. You got to pay your bills. So that is the ex-president of the United States, the man who might be the president again, saying to Russia, do whatever the hell you like to these countries that are not paying enough on defense. And it's astonishing, isn't it? I mean, the numbers are crazy. He's referring to 2% of GDP, which is the amount that NATO wants people to be spending, he wants people to be spending. The UK just gets in there at 2.07%. But, you know, Germany, one57 France... 1.90, Belgium 1.13, Bulgaria 1.84, Croatia 1.79, Czech Republic 1.5. I mean, the countries that Donald Trump is encouraging Russia to invade, it's astonishing. But is this, so A, of course, everyone's reacting with absolute horror and the Secretary General of NATO has reacted with horror and Joe Biden has come out very strongly and uh, criticised it. David Cameron came out and said this is appalling behaviour and indeed in general saying you're not going to support the Ukraine war effort, which is what Trump He did says. a challenge to the, the Congress to support... The Republican congressmen and women. And he said, you know, this is like appeasing Hitler in the 1930s. And he had a, a fabulous rebuff from a Trumpian congresswoman, Marjorie Taylor Greene. I think he tried to compare us to Hitler. And if that's the kind of language he wants to use, I really have nothing to say to him. Well, he likened you to an appeaser to Hitler in not voting through funding for Ukraine? Are you an appeaser for Putin? I, I think that um, I really don't care what David Cameron has to say. I think that's rude name calling. Um, and I don't appreciate that type of language. And David Cameron needs to worry about his own country. And frankly, he can kiss my ass. <laughs> yeah. I don't think she quite understood what David Cameron said, though, because I think he didn't say America was like Hitler. I, I think no. she... Also, also to complain oh my, about his rude language. I mean, when I said she was anyway. a Trumpian uh, congresswoman, but, what I meant was her grip on reality and her comprehension were limited. Is, okay, here, those who've uh, been listening to our 
previous episodes will remember we actually played a clip from Jamie Dimon, very sensible king of Wall Street, CEO of JP Morgan, the big bank, who said, in fact, Trump's methods had some sense to it. And although you, of course, you know, we have not grown up in a world where American presidents encourage Russia to invade France. Is it not true that this kind of language and the ambiguity he presents, which is, well, maybe America's not going to stand up behind people who don't put enough into the defense budget, is pushing these European countries who, frankly, sit behind the American taxpayers' security guarantee? It's the American taxpayers paying to defend these countries. Isn't it achieving what he wants to achieve? Isn't it forcing these countries to spend more on defense, even if it's, of course, not a method that you or I would approve of, let alone use? I mean, look, Turkey spends 0.25% of its GDP on defense. But I think that Turkey being in NATO is probably quite a good thing for the world. And I think if I was America, I would not want to see Turkey but, but, not there as a reliable ally. But, the, but your more general point, look, isn't the truth, the reason why people are spending more isn't because they're being threatened by Donald Trump. It's because the world's becoming a more dangerous place and we have multiple wars on our doorstep and we're all suddenly realising that the post-Cold War dividend, which led to you know, substantial cuts in defence spending in a number of parliaments, is going to go into reverse. We want to credit here the Institute for Fiscal Studies, who we asked to provide us with some numbers on defence spending over the decades. So in the 1950s, Britain is spending 7% of its national income, 7% of GDP on defence. Even in the 1980s, it's spending 4% of its income on defence. And now, and we're one of the good guys in NATO, we're spending 2% on defence. So there has been a really dramatic reduction in defence spending in all of these countries as, I guess, the Second World War wound down it, and then the Cold War ended. In fact, Margaret, Margaret, under Margaret Thatcher, this is one of my most interesting facts the IFS gave us this week, Margaret Thatcher is the first British Prime Minister who ends up spending more on the NHS than she does on defence. It happens in the 1980s that NHS spending crosses over defence spending. It's interesting. I mean, if you look at the IFS numbers which they gave us, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, in those two Conservative governments, 87, fall of 2.4%, a year, real terms in defence spending. Then in the major government, a fall of 3.9% a year in defence spending. And then defence spending is then positive, but kind of lower every year, other than actually in the coalition Conservative government, where it falls by an average 2.2% a year. So not as much as under the major... But that's also because we'd come out of Iraq and Afghanistan. Remember those defence spending, the defence spending under Labour was because of those very expensive campaigns. Over this period... Defence spending was, as you say, in GDP terms, either flat or marginally falling. It's a, it's it feels like that's going to reverse. I was actually kind of reflecting upon this because if you look at the Tory leadership campaign last time round, both Grant Shapps, who's at the Munich conference, and Tom Tugendhat committed to getting defence spending up to 3% of GDP. I'd actually One's, forgotten they were both in the contest. Until well, they, me. they were, <laughs> but, but they lost. Yeah. One's now the Defence Secretary, one's the Security Secretary. They've both gone along with a Conservative government which isn't making that pledge. But if you think forward to the next Conservative leadership election, I mean, aren't candidates going to be committing to higher defence spending? They are, but it, they're not going to be the Prime Minister. I think it's a bigger challenge for, in this scenario, the Labour Prime Minister, which is you've got all these pressures to spend money on the NHS, on social care, on 
you know, there's lots of pressure inside Labour. We'll talk about perhaps in the future to reverse some of the Tory benefit cuts, such as the two-child policy that I introduced. Gordon Brown was in the last week calling on Labour to reverse on that. And, you know, in that situation, the last thing that Starmer and Reeves are going to be wanting to do is spend more money in defence because defence spending is not generally popular with the public. I remember when we used to look at polls on this, it was other than international development spending, I'm sad to say, it's the second most unpopular form of government spending. It's not whether the country wants the money spent, even if the country also wants to be properly defended and safe. So it's a bit of a you know, paradox there. So Labour is going to, if, if there's going to be a Labour government, there's going to be pressure to find more money for defence. And it, you know, that's in an already very squeezed situation where there's pressure on all these other budgets, where you know, it's very hard to increase taxes. The last time that was tried by Sunak on national insurance, it was actually the Labour opposition that helped defeat it. So on the other hand, you know, I guess Starmer could reach back to the tradition of Clement Attlee and Ernie Bevin, the great post-war Labour politicians who commissioned Britain's nuclear deterrent and, uh, you know, were strong on defence. I don't know, where Where do you think? It's not going to be high on their list, is it, defence spending, even if they're going to have to end up spending it? Well, Labour can never afford to look weak on defence because that's always the accusation made. That's why, you know, in every parliament, 97 to 2010, defence spending rose in real terms because actually that is that is the, the imperative. Even the first parliament, well before the Iraq war, defence spending was up by 1.5%. But you're completely right. If the NHS is under pressure, social care is under pressure, you've got huge challenges to our kind of fighting crime and our social infrastructure. Finding the money also for big rises in defence is going to be very hard. It's why at the moment we have this phony conversation between the party leaderships on both sides about who can afford to do tax cuts. I just don't see cutting taxes as being on the agenda for whoever wins the, the, the next election, not least because of the kind of defence pressures which are being discussed in this Munich conference. Do you think also, I, I don't feel I've heard yet what the future of defence spending should look like because when I was Chancellor, you know, I was under big pressure to find the money to fund the two aircraft carriers, which we did, to pay for the next generation of fighter jets, which were unbelievably expensive. Each one basically costs the same as a, a small hospital. And yet now you look at the Ukraine war and it feels like a single drone can sink a Russian warship. Uh, you know, very sort of cheap technology, relatively speaking, is going up against the most expensive defence technology. And I, I wouldn't be entirely confident if the military chiefs came to the current chancellor or indeed the next chancellor and said, we want the next generation of fighter jet, we want the next generation of warship. And I know those plans are all in the you know, been in the pipeline for many, many years, that that's necessarily the right way to spend Britain's defence budget. So I'm all for spending more because I think that is the nature of the world. But I've not yet seen either party or indeed, you know, some respected think tank or military authority come forward and say, you know, the smart thing now is to pivot Britain's defence budget towards these uh, new kind of weapons. Look, if you've got questions you'd like to put to us about um, defence spending and the composition of spending, what it was like in government, in the Treasury, dealing with defence spending, we'll come back in future weeks to talk to you about whether there's a phony debate about tax cuts, given the huge spending pressures which are going to be in place for the budget. Maybe we should come back and have a, a focus on the defence budget as well. But we're out of time. Thanks very much indeed. Yeah, it's been quite a week. We've gone from recessions to Rochdale to 
Trump and the uh, borders with Russia and the future. I thought you'd say Reykjavik, because that would have been an R. <laughs> I, was, I was trying to think of another R. I thought of Romania and I thought Riga. it was a bit... Re- Riga. Riga. That's, that's true. Riga is unfortunately on the front line. So thank you so much for listening. Please continue to follow us on your various podcast apps. Recommend us to your friends. Send us in questions, which we can answer at EMQs. Our next episode of that is coming out on Monday. And see you next week. And you can also share episodes with your friends. Ellie's very keen for us to say that. So we've said it. I already did say that. Did you say you could share episodes? I think so. I don't think anyway, you, you can. If you, have, you can share episodes with your questions. friends. What does it mean, sharing episodes? We'll find out for next week. <laughs> See you soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Political Currency. This has been a Persephonica production.